part of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Hey, good morning, y'all. Welcome to The Valley Labor Report. My name is Adam Keller, and this is Shop Talk, our new Thursday morning episode we're producing every week with a focus on labor education, history, and training. It's Thursday, June 1st, and we're broadcasting live from Spice Radio Studio in the heart of the Tennessee Valley here in Huntsville, Alabama. Every episode is live streamed on YouTube and Facebook and is released on your favorite podcasting platform in the coming days. Today on the show, we'll be chatting with Brother Chris Townsend and his work in recovering some of labor's hidden histories. Really looking forward to this conversation today. Uh, Just a reminder that the Valley Labor Report is a working class media collective dedicated to lifting up labor struggles throughout Alabama and across the South. We bring you Alabama's only union talk radio show every Saturday morning with the first half uh, from 930 to 11 a.m. live on FM radio through WVNN here in the Huntsville listening area. The entire program is online via Facebook, YouTube and podcast and portions of the program are replayed on WZZA in the Shoals and WHIV out of New Orleans. We do encourage you to check out our website, tvlr.fm, uh, which we're, we've been expanding to feature published articles, news, commentary. Uh, we've had some op-eds. We've had some reporting, uh, some original reporting on local stories here in Alabama. Uh, we've had some uh, guest writers as well, including from... Chris Townsend, today's guest. So definitely check out tvlr.fm. We've got some great stuff up there. Uh, And while you're there, you can head over to the store and check out our merch. Uh, We do have some new shirts in that came in this past month. Uh, We've got about 20 of them left, I think. So uh, definitely want to get your hands on one of those. If you want to check that out, go to tvlr.fm slash store. And finally, we rely on donations and sponsorships to put out all of this free content. We appreciate the local unions and organizations that have sponsored ads on our main Saturday show. We are still looking for more sponsors for Overtime and Shop Talk. Uh, We do have Labor Notes on board as our very first Shop Talk sponsor, but uh, we'd love to have a couple more to sustain the series for the long haul. So beyond unions and allied organizations, we're also interested in other media outlets, union print shops and vendors, book publishers, really anyone who might be interested in reaching an audience of union activists and allies. So if you're interested in becoming a sponsor or if you have ideas about potential sponsors, definitely hit us up. And as much as we love and appreciate our sponsors, our single biggest source of contributions comes from listener donations. Uh, from folks like yourself who are listening who chip in a couple bucks. You can make a one-time donation or a recurring contribution at tvlr.fm slash donate. We also have a Patreon if you prefer to donate that way, and uh, we'll even take a good old-fashioned check mailed to our P.O. box, whatever works for you. And whether you donate or share, subscribe, or just listen, we really do appreciate your support, and we can't do it without you. We put out all of this content for free because we are dedicated to growing the Southern labor movement. And if you share this mission, please support us however you can so that we can have media by, for, and of the working class. And at the Valley Labor Report, we are big fans of Labor Notes. Labor Notes is a media and organizing project that since 1979 has been the voice of union activists who want to put the movement back in the labor movement. Through their magazine, website, books, conferences, and workshops, Labor Notes promotes organizing, aggressive strategies to fight concessions, alliances with worker centers, and unions that are run by their members. Labor Notes is also a network of rank-and-file members, 
local union leaders, and labor activists who know the labor movement is worth fighting for. They encourage connections between workers in different unions, worker centers, communities, industries, and countries to strengthen the movement from the bottom up. With 40 years of movement building behind them, Labor Notes exist as a resource for leaders and union members who want to chart a new course for the labor movement. At the Valley Labor Report, uh, we are proud subscribers and we're proud supporters, and we encourage all of our listeners to uh, follow our lead there and definitely support Labor Notes. You can go to labornotes.org to find out more information. And with all that out of the way, today I'm excited we have a special guest, a longtime organizer, a returning guest to the Valley Labor Report, and a true friend to the show, Brother Chris Townsend. Chris, thank you so much for, for joining me this morning. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks. Absolutely. So let's get you here on the screen. It's always a little tougher when it's just me by myself, you know, uh, running it, but I uh, appreciate you joining me this morning. So longtime listeners may recall that you've been on our Saturday show a couple times. Uh, yeah. But for those of you who don't know you, would you mind giving just a brief introduction and telling us a little bit about your journey in the labor movement? Sure. Thanks. Uh, and thanks for everything you guys do with the show. Uh, uh, my name is Chris Townsend. Uh, I am uh, recently retired, but for 40 Four years, I spent time uh, in the labor movement, two unions primarily, the Amalgamated Transit Union and the United Electrical Workers. And uh, I've done just about everything you can do in the labor movement. Although I was telling somebody the other day, I've never done an arbitration. So don't depend on me to get your job back uh, with an arbitration. But otherwise, I've done just about the rest of it, organizing, uh, strike struggle, bargaining, union administration of all sides, political action, education, training, you name it. So uh, I'm sort of retired, but here I am. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, a couple of things I was going to say there. First of all, having experienced an arbitration about my own employment, uh, you didn't miss anything fun. I can tell you that much. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, and you did mention you retired, but you're pretty damn busy to be retired, as I was telling you off the air. Um and one of your major projects, which has really been, I think, multiple projects, has been to recover some of labor's hidden histories and getting some books back in print that have been lost over time. Uh, before we get into some of the specific books, I was wondering if you could just talk to us a, a little bit about why you're doing this work and why you think that's important. Sure. Uh, like folks, a lot of folks who are probably listening, I'm self-trained beyond high school. I didn't set foot in college. I know a lot of folks today managed to get into college a little bit, maybe, uh, but uh, it was never in the cards for me. And I was always a, a good student, but I was a good student on things that I was interested in. So mm. once I went to work out of high school and I became interested in labor and political things associated with it, uh, I realized I had a lot to learn. And uh, back then, before the Internet, this would have been the late 70s. If you didn't collect up every written word that you could find, every book, every pamphlet, every manual, every uh, handout that there was and kind of keep them, uh, you were adrift. There wasn't a 1-800-Union uh, help back then. There was no Internet. I mean, it, it's hard for folks to imagine. I have to remind myself what it was like. So anyway, I became a bit of a, of a bookworm and a kind of a barstool uh, professor in a way, and that was what served me very well. And I've, you know, developed over the decades now a gigantic labor library and, you know, a extensive knowledge of where things are and where you can find out. And I, I've always just been motivated to spread that around to folks. It's of no use in my head. Uh, we need this knowledge of where you can do your homework and how you can get better prepared for your union struggle. Uh, you need to know that and you need to actually access it. So the book reprinting has sort of developed naturally from that orientation that I have. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I really appreciate that about you, that you are someone who really does take it seriously, the, the mission to educate folks and to, you know, if you receive knowledge, to pass it on and keep it going. Uh, and before we get into the first book I was going to mention, which is American Trade Unionism, 
that was really born out of something you were working on, the Inside Organizing School. So could you tell us a little bit about that and how this book by Foster uh, sort of played a role there? Yeah, it, it's, uh, I guess things do fit together over the years and decades. Uh, a book that I was introduced to as a teenager, it's the collected works of William Z. Foster called, uh, or this version of it is referred to as American Trade Unionism. And I had a copy from the late 70s when I had first come upon it. And it was one of the most influential books for my life. It explained, you know, why the employers do what they do, why the unions sometimes do or don't do what they do, the role of the membership, the role of the left wing. I don't have any problem being identified as a left winger. What's the role that I need to play, should play, can play? I mean, this book was like a roadmap for me. So anyway, many, many, many years later, in 19, no, in 2017, uh, we started an organizing and training school for union organizers at that time under the umbrella of the Amalgamated Transit Union. And I just insisted at that time that that book, American Trade Unionism, be brought back into print so that it could be essentially the unofficial text of our school. It's a, it's, there's a lot of different training schools you can go to, um, Adam, and they're nice, they're social justice, uh, peace and love, uh, community oriented, they're mm -hmm. all fine, go to, go to as many as you can. But what we needed at that time was a trade union school that focused on the realities of organizing today and the class struggle context that all of us have to operate in. So that book, uh, American Trade Unionism, uh, landed on my radar again. I dug it out of my library and realized that it hadn't printed since 1980, I think it was. So I called up the publisher, International Publishers. Uh, everybody should make note of that publisher, International Publishers out of New York City, a labor and left wing press. And I just began to gently and then sometimes a little more forcefully push on them to put that book back into print. And remember, it's easy for a guy like me to call up a press and say, hey, if you'll put that book back into print, I'll buy one. Well, I was at least able to say, I think we're going to buy uh, a, more than one or a few. And uh, of course, right. what enabled the printing what enabled this project to go forward was the fact that first international publishers agreed and thought, yes, we should do this. And this guy has a viable idea. And then secondly, the nature of book publishing today, it's books on demand in many cases, which is another discussion. But uh, once uh, it was put back into print, we've sold several thousand or they have sold several thousand copies of them. I constantly use that book uh, with the uh organizing school and it, it is the unofficial text of that school so it was a good launch a successful project it had its uh, bumps and aggravations but we got it done and now we're able to use that book and it's scattering i'm i did a uh, zoom the other day with a group of progressive guys in the building trades in central canada okay and when cool. i started the, when i started the talk everybody held up the book I wish that had taken a picture of it because there's seven guys all holding this book up in the middle of Canada someplace. And I thought, well, that's always nice to see that your ink blot has spread to the fringes. That so, is awesome. Yeah. I mean, why do you, what do you account for that? Why do you think that this book is resonating uh, in this new moment? I, I, I don't, it's not me. It's not uh, anything that I'm doing necessarily. I think it's the moment where we have a tremendous moment of flux in the labor movement where a lot of the activists, the activists might be young, they might be middle-aged, they might be older like me, they may be already in the unions, they may be trying to organize and get into the union, but they sense uh, something is fundamentally wrong. Something is not happening. It's sort of like diagnosing a car that's got the knocks. What's wrong with this? It's not going as fast as it could. It's not turning as well as it might. It's not, it's, there's something not right here. And Foster diagnoses a lot of that. And I think a lot of folks in our movement will know if you've been in the labor movement for a while, we're sort of resistant to acknowledging our shortcomings 
Mm. We're sort of so embattled and so surrounded from all sides and constantly under attack that we, we almost feel that it's not anything that we should ever do to really self-critical. And look, are we living up to our potential? Are we, you know, fulfilling the the uh, goals of the labor movement? What are the goals of the labor movement? So I think Foster goes to this moment that we have. You know, he feeds that with a lot of his writings and a lot of his principles. He was also somebody, to me anyway, that was able to come up with short little slogans that said it all, that really said it for me. One of his was his admonition, his observation that the left wing must do the work. The left wing, what does that mean? The the left wing within the labor movement. It's always the radicals and the militants and the folks who are most driven and most animated by trade union principles that do the work. And it was just such a simple observation. But when I heard it, I thought, wow, that, that really is the way things are. That's who gets the work done. The folks who want to work you know, eight to four and go home and never think about the labor movement otherwise, never do anything other than uh, what they get paid to do, the lost time junkies out there and all this. These folks don't build the labor movement. They're they're nice people. They help maintain it. Uh, But we need many, many more people that, that are animated by a desire to build and continually rebuild the labor movement and spread the benefits of what we have to other workers. So. Right. I mean, and I think having a a critical approach to the movement as it exists, being willing to look at, okay, what are the strategies and tactics that we're using now? What's working and what's not working? Uh, And what could we try? What could we do differently? What has been tried in the past, but we haven't used in quite some time? You know, that's that's also so important. and, and that discussion of William Foster leads into the next book that you've been heavily involved in, you, uh, in this one in particular, Working Class Giant, which is uh, a biography of William Z. Foster. Talk to us about this one, Working Class Giant. Why was this important to get back out there? You know, and you also wrote uh, the foreword for it. So, you know, why was this one so big? I mean, you mentioned the importance of of American trade unionism and the role that had on your organizing. Uh, So I imagine Foster, the individual, has had quite the influence as well. Right. Yeah, the the Foster is uh, um, for folks that poke around the Internet and will look up, uh, you know, labor leaders of past generations. Foster's name will come up. But uh, it, when we managed, when International Publishers was, was, you know, forward thinking enough to put American trade unionism back into print, and when it began to sell uh, and circulate, and the whole buzz about William Z. Foster's life and work began to sort of tick up around the Internet and, you know, filter out as it has, uh, you know, I went back to international publishers and reminded them that uh, in the same time frame, uh, 1980, that a biography had been printed of uh, William Z. Foster, a biography meaning the story of his life, you know, who he was as a human being, not just his principles as a trade unionist or the uh, battles and adventures he had gotten into, but what was he as a human being? And it's not a, a thick read. But it was uh, Arthur Zipser was his last secretary and, uh, you know, wrote about his life from beginning to end. And uh, I thought it was important to get that book back into print. And Tony Pesanovsky, who's uh, the director of International Publishers, a very good guy from St. Louis, uh, you know, agreed and uh, asked me to write a new forward so that the book would have at least something additional and new in it compared to the old edition, and it's just come out. And uh, I think it will be a great compliment to American trade unionism and a great compliment to everybody uh, who, again, you know, the Foster revival, I guess we might call it, is far, far beyond anything that I'm doing. It didn't originate with me and it didn't, uh, you know, doesn't depend on me. But I think that as these several books kind of join the stream of activity out there, it'll be well received and folks will be even more curious about who he was. He was an amazing figure. I have a kinship with him because he went to work. uh, He went to work as about a 10 year old 
uh, back in that day. I didn't actually go to work until I was 13 or 14. And, uh, you know, he passed away just a few months before I was born. So, of course, I never knew him, never met him. But uh, what an impact he's had, not only on our labor movement here, but then on a guy like me, you know, all these decades later, uh, in terms of me trying to be not just a trade unionist, but be a better trade unionist. Right. Uh, animated as what you had said, uh, Adam, with labor notes, the labor notes slogan. Let's put the movement back in the labor movement. And that's always been my identification with things. Why do we have these unions? Do we have them so that a few people can have privileged positions within them and we can go to Labor Labor Day and say we're in a union? Is this, no, we have these unions so we can greatly improve the lot of working people and defend the gains we've already made. And I think eventually, you know, I, I have a, a whole story, a whole daydream about where I would like to see the labor movement go in terms of its power and its influence in the country. But uh, but I think that uh, coming back to the Foster biography, people will be uh, interested in this. It's Working Class Giant by Arthur Zipser. Working Class Giant by Arthur Zipser, again, published by international publishers in New York. Yeah, I, I think that that is a great companion to the, the work that you got put put out previously, uh, you know, to, to get to know the man a little bit with the principles. Uh, but yeah, I really appreciate what you're saying here because I think it is so important. And that's why labor history is something that I'm passionate about. I'm passionate about it in terms of the high school level and young people being exposed to labor history. But for those of us who are in this movement or consider ourselves to be in this movement, uh, I think we have a responsibility to continually educate ourselves and always be learning. I'll always look back at our history to see what we can learn from uh, because we're not the first people to have these thoughts. We're not the first people to struggle with the boss. We're not the first people to struggle with right-wing politicians uh, or sell-out bureaucrats or you know whatever the situation yep. may be. You know, our brothers and sisters who came before us have have been there, and and they 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 learned from it. They lived through it. Some of them didn't live through it, uh, and so those are lessons we can learn. Um, and sticking with some of the books from international publishers, there was a book that uh, I found interesting: the Communist Party and the Auto Workers Union is one that that I, I believe is just being republished. Uh, and there wasn't a lot out there, just that it, it refutes commonly held ideas about communist and labor unions. So um, did, did you have any information about that one? Sure. Yeah. The uh, Communist Party and the Auto Workers uh, is a book uh, authored by Roger Kieran, a scholar and trade unionist of many, many decades. And Roger's uh, book had been printed and then had gone out of print. And the reason why this book is of interest to many in the younger generation is that it, it covers unknown history about United Auto Workers. If you would read conventional reports, corporate reports, you would think that the United Auto Workers Union sprang out of nowhere in Flint, Michigan in 1936 or 1937. In fact, 30 years preceding that, there had been one after the other desperate struggles to start a union in the auto industry. The auto industry was was a what they used to refer to as a man killer because the assembly line was just, you know, production was driven to the limit and the men, it was all men uh, primarily who worked in that industry, were just driven at such a speed at a rate and then thrown away when they got to be older or injured or couldn't keep up. And the auto workers industry, as it mushroomed in the United States and all of its different uh, spinoffs, truck manufacturing and vehicle, you know, parts and whatnot, the United Auto Workers was really the result of 30 years of furious struggle by left wing unions and sort of militant unions that would start and get started and go out of business and start again and move along the Communist Party, the Socialist Party, the IWW, other left groups played tremendous roles in all of these struggles to try to establish a permanent union in the auto industry. And in any case, uh, all of us probably who've been paying attention probably know that the United Auto Workers today, uh, for various circumstances now, has new leadership 
a new renewed leadership and revived leadership. And this history of theirs is critical. And this, uh, again, is international publishers, uh, uh, the Communist Party and the Auto Workers by Roger Kieran, K-E-E-R-A-N, uh, a must read for anybody interested in sort of that that early union formation period and the trial and error and the success and failure of that period. But that, uh, you know, the work to get that book back into print, and again, the international publishers was eager to, to do it and uh, put it back out on the market so that folks could, could get it. Uh, that also led me down a separate path for a different book also related to the uh, formation of the uh, auto union, which was a book by Wyndham Mortimer, Wyndham Mortimer, and his uh, the title is uh, "Organize!" Exclamation point. Organize my life as a union man. Well, Wyndham Mortimer uh, did more to found the United Auto Workers than than probably anyone else, but he was written out of the union uh, early, relatively early in his career because he was a little bit too militant. Mm. And Walter Ruther, who went on to rise and fall as the leader of that union, uh, essentially rode the coattails of Wyndham Mortimer. And anyway, the, I think anyone trying to understand today how the United Auto Workers sort of rose and fell now to where they are now trying to get back up can't understand that history unless you read Roger Kieran's the Communist Party and the auto workers and uh, Wyndham Mortimer's organized. Now, getting Wyndham Mortimer's book back in the print, that's been quite an ordeal because I have to track down his family, which I seem to be steadily and slowly doing. But uh, the book is out of print. We have to obtain the rights to do it. But I'm very eager to get that book out as a compliment to Karen's book. And again, for this moment, when we have a very large and important union, the United Auto Workers, beginning to stand back up again and, uh, you know, become a real viable player in the, the trade union scene again. Right. So absolutely. Those, if ever it was relevant, it's it's now, yes. uh, you know, negotiations with the big three will be happening before long. Yep. Uh, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with this new reform minded president uh, in the reform caucus that, you know, swept these historic elections. So. Yeah, very, very timely, uh, very timely. And something else that, you know, that that book in particular brings up for me is that I think we shouldn't hide from the history of the left in the labor movement. Uh, there is a tendency to do that, I think, uh, among the establishment and the unions to, uh, I think, pretend that the communists and the anarchists and the socialists just never existed, that they, they never had a role, that they were never there. Uh, and I get that it's controversial to acknowledge them. Uh, there are probably people, um, you know, in my life who would prefer I not talk about them. Uh, but it doesn't do us any good to pretend it didn't happen. Uh, we have to. Adam, to, to talk about the labor movement and its origination and its foundation, and it's even today, its continuing vitality, to speak of that without mentioning leftists. Mm of all the different streets, uh, stripes, is akin to trying to talk about Christianity without talking about Christ. Right. Uh, they're, the, they're the foundational force and uh, remain the vital, uh, you know, energy, uh, forward uh, energy uh, in the labor movement. And it doesn't mean that they're the only uh, force, of course, uh, as one of Foster's observations, Lindsay Foster's observations was, within the labor movement itself, there are center, right, left, and center forces uh, within the union, folks who view the trade union in a conservative way, in sort of a mushy way, and then as a left uh, militant way, and those forces cohabit with each other within the union. And uh, But yet, as he said, as I repeated before, it's the left wing that does the work, that moves the organization forward, that pushes out the boundaries that better resists the attacks of the employers and the employers political frontmen, AKA mm. the government. Uh, so uh, yeah, I mean, it is the political, you, you can look at beginnings, the originations of practically all the unions in the United States and in one way or the other, their roots were driven by either socialists or anarchists or communists or plain and simple militants or 
this sort of anti-corporate type minds. Uh, of course, uh, I point out to people, conservative people don't start unions. Right. Uh, people that live in the middle and can't make up their mind, they don't start unions. Folks that are decisive and want to confront injustice, they start unions. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, there was a book on here that I, I thought was interesting uh, that I was not familiar with, which, well, the last two I, w I wasn't familiar with. And one was The History of the Labor Movement in the United States, Volume 11, The Great Depression by Philip Foner. Uh, you know, I, I was a little surprised that that was out of print, actually. But uh, it looks like it's going to be, you know, a, a pretty hardcore analysis of the Great Depression era labor movement in particular. Right. Uh, and, and why well, do you it, think it, that's relevant? Yeah, no, it, it's a little bit more uh, expansive of, a, of an explanation. That book ends up being volume 11, if you can believe it, volume 11 of a history of the labor movement in the United States. This is one of the sleeper, you know, must reads for any anyone in the labor movement, either hoping to or trying to play a role in protecting, advancing the labor movement. It's Philip Foner, F-O-N-E-R, uh, History of the Labor Movement in the United States, Volumes 1 through 11, and also International Publishers uh, in New York. Uh, and International Publishers, from its first volume of Foner's book, printed it, which was, I believe, 1948. Uh, and what Foner does, he was just a remarkable scholar uh, and labor historian. He traced the history of the U.S. labor movement from the colonial period up until when his health failed and he finally passed away. Uh, and he had been able to track it all the way up through the Great Depression. Wow. Uh, he passed away in 1990, I believe. But what a titanic uh epic undertaking for him to do this. And it's become in many quarters a gold standard of understanding the comings and goings of the labor movement over those 200 years. And in any case, during my collaboration with international publishers about uh, the Foster books, it came to my attention that there was a potential volume 11 at that time. There were only 10 volumes at that time that had been printed and marketed put out for sale, but it it was made, I was made aware that there was maybe a volume 11. So a small collective of us got together and uh, contact, you know, went back to International and, and worked with them, took possession of the notes, the manuscript that there was. It took uh, some effort on our part, uh, but again, a collective effort to shine up what was a draft manuscript of uh, Phil Foner for volume 11, and uh, it was finally released, the Great Depression. Uh, and it, I guess in some ways for all of us in the collective, uh, uh, you know, Walter Tillo and Roger Kieran and Joe Jameson and Mike Scheinberg and a few other folks who did all this work to, to get this book presented. And then, of course, Tony Pesanovsky and Gary Bono and international publishers helping and supporting this project to get it out. I mean, we were really, really proud of ourselves to have brought that uh, possibly the final volume to uh, to fruition. Now, I'll tease everybody, anybody that's familiar with that uh, that thing. It's an, it's a daunting thing to look at a, a now an eleven volume history of the labor movement, but anyone who's ever seen a single volume will not forget it because it's very readable and it's really more of a true history of the labor, you know, a un uh, uncensored, unexpurgated uh, history of the labor movement, written from a worker's standpoint, and not the the college professor's uh, uh, viewpoint or the, a corporate viewpoint. Right. But uh, but anyway, we the teasing is uh, apparently there's some some uh, notes that may comprise volume twelve. Oh, cool. So we may be back. Yeah, it's a it's a you know a discussion. There's a whole thing about you know maybe and maybe not. It will be feasible to take possession of those notes. So I'm I'm working with international publishers now to see if what there is and could something be assembled out of that. So that's I know how much work it was for Volume Eleven, but uh, we'll see if if it can be done. Uh, we feel an obligation to sort of you know get it back out. Foner was. 
Foner authored more than a hundred books uh, about labor leaders and the labor movement in his just an immense career. And the majority of his books were published by international publishers. So, so that's uh, that was uh, we're very proud of that. Yeah, in a lot of ways. That's amazing. I, yeah, I didn't realize that you know y'all really had to put that one together uh, and you know like you said, polish it up. That's really, really cool. And I mean, I think if you look at the the labor movement in this country, most folks would argue the Great Depression is kind of when we came into our own. Uh, and, you know, in a lot of ways, the 30s was, was the peak of our strength and power. And, uh, you know, we mentioned the UAW earlier, certainly the UAW uh, hit its stride in the 30s. And so, you know, if... Uh, if we are entering a new period for the labor movement, we certainly should be looking at what happened during the Depression and how we responded. And also, I think, frankly, there, there's enough. Um, we can look at the economy and we recognize that we enter a recession every few years. Uh, it's cyclical. We're, we're kind of due for one if we're not already entering into one. And so there again, you know, I think there's a lot of relevance to today's movement. Uh, and the last book from international publishers I wanted to mention, which I thought was really interesting and I definitely had never heard of, it's a book by Charles Rubin, The Log of Rubin the Sailor. Uh, what's that one about? Yeah, I, The Log of Rubin the Sailor is uh, a biography or an autobiography almost of uh, Charlie Rubin, who was an immigrant uh, sailor and uh, worked in the maritime industry. This would be, you know, 100 years ago and 75 years ago and whatnot. And uh, he was one of the founders, or it ended up that he was one of the founders of the National Maritime Union, which was the CIO union um, of sailors and seafarers. And in any case, uh, I guess uh, I, I keep mentioning international publishers uh, for good reason, because part of what I was, was apparently already underway when I contacted international publishers about the Foster book, which would have been 2018, late 2017, 2018, there already was underway in international publishers, sort of a, you know, a, a movement to revive and to uh, <clears throat> put uh, some of their previous books back into print and begin to obtain new titles from, you know, authors still producing new works. And uh, again, uh, Tony Pesanovsky and Gary Bono, they picked up uh, from uh, the legacy of Betty Smith. She should be mentioned. And, uh, you know, the tremendous work, you know, International Publishers is on the cusp of its 100th anniversary. That's another discussion. Be on the lookout for that. That's but cool. in any case, as part of this uh, sort of internal revival and re revitalization of International Publishers, uh, Tony Pesanovsky pointed out to me that he was going to bring this book, The Log of Reuben the Sailor by Charlie Reuben, back into print. And uh, I love I that cover, by the way. The cover yeah, itself it's a sailor is sailor so cool. on deck, you know, yeah, pointing to the future. In any case, the uh, uh, I was asked to see if I could find somebody to write a new forward for the book. And I found um, Carlo Gentile who's a working seafarer and a member of the Seafarers Union. Uh, and he's done a new forward for the book. So uh, that is uh, a wonderful compliment, just like mine was for Foster's biography. It freshens it up, gives it sort of a current context. And uh, we're looking forward to putting that back out. And folks today in the labor movement wouldn't even know that there had been incredibly vibrant and militant maritime unions, sailors unions, waterfront unions, uh, it just other than the West Coast Longshore Union, International Longshore and Warehouse Union, most folks would never have bumped into uh, anyone from the marine trades we used to call them. So anyway, The Log of Reuben the Sailor by Charlie Reuben, International Publishers, uh, very proud. Another one and there's more to come. Uh, and international Publishers, uh, you know, is really you know pushing along its own its own revival. So very proud of that book. Yeah, that's really cool. And I, I love that y'all had a, a current member, a current union member, write the forward for that. Um, you know, I think it sort of speaks to the fact that this is working class history by and for working class people. 
and, and you're not you're not approaching this as if you know this is obscure academic work. This is work yeah. that is there to help uplift the labor movement and labor activists and organizers well, of today. Yeah, and, and Adam, with the with the Marine workforce, you know, the seafarers, the 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 men and some women now who work these uh, cargo ships and and uh, passenger ships and ferries and all the tugs and barges around the coast. You know, the, the, they were really the the early warning of what was going to happen to the U.S. economy because they were replaced systematically by the corporations and with a lot of assistance from the United States government to replace the companies with foreign companies, most of the time owned by U.S. companies. But then they were all those ships that did increasing amounts of the, the trade from U.S. ports in and out were foreign owned ships with sailors uh, scraped up from all over the world. Some of the most outrageous exploitation you can imagine of these workers with no rights, no unions. And then, of course, the U.S. unions were weakened, debilitated, and in many cases eliminated. Uh, and the wages reduced to, you know, serfdom conditions, uh, sort of where Charlie Rubin started. Right. When he was uh, he was from Poland and he was a sailor from Poland who came to the United States. And uh, so it, it's all the way around the wheel. And I guess I just blurt that out because uh, we've seen that happen to industry after industry after industry. And I guess we saw it first with with shipping because it can be moved. It floats. Mm. And I, I'll this would be the only place I'll have all year to mention this in all my year dealing when I was at the United Electrical Workers and I would deal with the General Electric Company. Uh, the General Electric Company at a certain point got tired of UE and the other unions, you know, badgering them. They would have liquidated this wholesale had they had the power and ability to do that. But at one point, the company actually said at negotiations, they said to the, the trade unions in General Electric offices, the General Electric Company said, if we could put every one of your factories on a barge, and push it around the planet from port to port, always going from lower wage to lower wage to lower wage. That would be our absolute goal. That wow. would be our absolute purpose. Yeah. And for us to hear that, that's quoted in many places. It's like you know it, but to hear it is is something That's else. right. To hear it right out of their mouths. We would just take your job and push it around. And of course, what they did done instead is to bring, uh, you know, bring it down on us here in a somewhat different way. But the result is the same. Right. Mass and poverty of the working class, tremendous enrichment of uh, of the corporations. So, yeah. So anyway, the, the log of Charlie Rubin or the log of Rubin, the sailor by Charlie Rubin, again, another international publisher uh, product. Yeah. And I, I know there's a few others that you're actually working on. I don't know how much you want to speak to any of those, but you've got quite a few that you're you're working on. You're tracking down living heirs of the authors. You're you know trying to get permission for reprints and all that. So, uh, uh, you know, anything you want to say about those that you are working on, any in particular you kind of want to tease out that might be really interesting to folks? Yeah, maybe. Uh, I, Folks around the labor movement, uh, one of the lesser publicized but still well-known books that circulates around for decades now is a book called Labor's Untold Story, Labor's Untold Story. And it's a book of sort of a short compendium of history of the U.S. labor movement that uh, uh, was done by two uh, progressive uh, researchers and professors. And it ended in 1955. In other words, their historical view stopped when they printed their book in 1955. My union, the United Electrical Workers, uh, put that book back into print in 1970. I guess I'll say that this whole notion of being able to get lost works back into print, I guess it was always on my mind because in within UE, it's always taught to folks that, hey, this book had been lost. But the leadership of UE in 1970 brought it back into print because they had been walking the picket line of the National General Electric strike in 1969, early 1970, and realized that the new workers coming in just had no access, didn't know very much or anything about the U.S. labor movement. So they put that book back into print. It has now gone through 29 printings since 1970. Uh, the union really doesn't make any conscious effort to promote it. I do it quite 
quite a personal project to circulate it and sell it and move it around. But anyway, I, the project that I'm working on there is to see if we can find a capable writer to update it. Because again, it cuts off in 1955. So it's my goal to see if we can find somebody to produce some kind of a final chapter, so to speak, to bring us up from 1955 to something like the current day and then repackage it. And the next time that UE reprints it, we could have a new and improved edition. So it's a major project. We had actually monkeyed around with this 15 years ago and, and for various reasons, we just couldn't execute the, the project. But uh, but that's a variation, I guess. It's a modification of the book and updating of the book and, and then a relaunch of the book. So I'm very happy uh, to be involved in that one. I guess some of the others that I've worked on, some folks may have heard the name of a famous uh, labor activist and author, Len, Len Decaux, D-E-C-A-U-X, Len Decaux. He's from New Zealand, came to the United States was initially in the IWW and eventually became a, a stalwart activist in the Congress of Industrial Organizations. He was the publicist. He was the head of communication for the CIO. And he wrote a book called Labor Radical, Labor Radical, uh, that has been out of print for decades. And I'm in the process of tracking down some of his heirs to get permission to put that back. He's also written a book uh, that international publishers owns. It's called The Living Spirit of the Wobblies, mm. the IW, the Living Spirit. Yeah, now this is one that I'm optimistic in uh, my collaboration with international publishers that we'll be able to get that out probably sooner than Labor Radical because they already own it and would just have to reprint it. But it's a it's Len Deco's history of his time in the IWW and sort of the rise and fall of the IWW. And of course, the IWW today still exists and is experienced quite a revival of its own. Uh, and this book would, I think, be very vital for some of the folks that are, you know, learning the history of that union, the role that it played, the, 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 what it contributed to our labor movement, which was a tremendous amount and still does. So anyway, that one leads to the other, I guess, uh, right. you know, when you have you know, this going on. The other one I guess I'll mention is, uh, and I think I had put it on that uh, list that I sent to you, there's a because of my work with so many of the young activists, that's another story, but I have tremendous ongoing contact with what ends up being hundreds per month of these young, usually young, younger, younger than me, <laughs> uh, trade union, uh, you know, activists, members and leaders. Uh, I there's a huge uh, rebirth of progressive activity in the teachers unions. There's two teachers mm. unions in the United States, the American Federation of Teachers and the National Education Association. If you put the two unions together, it's the largest block of trade union members in the United States. There's probably something in excess of 4 million members of the two teachers unions combined, maybe more like five. I mean, a gigantic sector. We, we probably don't think of it that way in the labor movement, but this is a thing. So a woman by the name of Marjorie Murphy wrote a, a short history, short enough. It's, you know, a, it's scholarly, but it was not 11 volumes, thank goodness. But uh, she wrote a book called The Blackboard Unions, and it was printed in 1990. Uh, but of course, the book's gone out of print. The publisher's no longer interested in it, and I can't do anything until I find Marjorie Murphy. So if anybody knows Marjorie Murphy out there, uh, she was a retired professor from Swarthmore, and I have done, you can't imagine the things that I've done to go looking for her, phone calls, letters. I've spread the word amongst the academic community. I will find Sister Murphy. I venture to say when I do, she'll have a smile and somebody reminds her that, yeah, there's a gigantic audience out here for her book. And I, I should also say, the reason why I got excited about this was not because I thought it was a good book. I've never read the book. I have a gigantic library. Different people will ask me, have you read all these books, Chris? And I say, well, you know the answer to that. The answer <laughs> is no. I, I picked it up because I knew the role that the teachers unions play. And I had extra copies where I had picked them up used. And again, this large diaspora of young activists, one of them is a former 
staff member of mine, a woman I trained, and now she's a school teacher in Chicago, belongs to the Chicago Teachers Union, Abigail Agresti. Shout out to Abigail. She will fall out when she finds this book and have this sense of her own history when I'm able to get it done. But but anyway, I ran out of the used copies that I had. And uh, what you find out with the used book business is as the books go out of print and the copies sell, the price algorithm sends them into the roof. So if you want to try to buy this book today, there's one or two for sale. You're going to spend $175 for that book. And that obviously nobody's going to buy it. So uh, in any case, uh, I, I'm, I couldn't be more excited about that particular book because it does have such a gigantic audience out there of activists in that union. Think of all the graduates teaching student uh, positions that are unionizing today, you know, having an understanding of those two primary unions yeah. in the industry would be an amazing thing. So I'll keep you posted on that one. Uh, Definitely you know, again, do. Uh, Marjorie, we're looking for Marjorie. Marjorie <laughs> uh, and uh, then hopefully we can get her permission to read. That would be fantastic. And that's definitely one that is close to my heart. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if you remember me telling you a little bit about my background and working with education. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah you know, um, that's awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. Uh, you know what? I think I remember seeing a copy of that somewhere in an old Alabama Education Association closet somewhere. Um, and that's another one. There is a there is a history of the Alabama Education Association, head of the class, uh, that's also out of, out of print. And it's one of the only books I've been able to find that actually details uh, the uh, Walker County teacher strike of 1979 and the uh, yeah. Scottsboro teacher strike a year or two later here in Alabama. There haven't been many teacher strikes in this state, and no, that's about and, the and only source I can find. Yeah, a, a couple of comments that dovetail with this, Adam. The, the, the teachers' unions aren't just large because there's a lot of teachers. A, it's a fighting union. It has gone through processes of ups and downs and growth and contraction. But uh, they have been one of the trailblazers. In many parts of the country, you can search high and low, and the only people you'll find in many communities who are connected to any union at all would be the school teachers, the UPS workers, the post office. Maybe the railroad, if, they, if the railroad goes through, but that would be it. And mm -hmm. the labor movement really owes a great debt of gratitude to the teachers' unions. And then secondarily, when you mentioned finding the union uh, history on a shelf someplace, uh, folks listening who belong to different unions, it, it's overdue for folks to go to the existing union leadership from the president on down, say, brother, sister. What are you doing to even promote the history of our own union amongst our rank and file? Uh, this is one of the most scandalous, scandalous uh, lackings of our labor movement. You could walk up to 100 union members and you'd be lucky to find half a dozen. You'd be lucky to find half a dozen out of 100 who could give you any substantial notion of where their union came from, who started it. What were the struggles that the early leaders had to go through? What was the context? Uh, what were the success stories? What were the valiant battles? What were the defeats of the union? And uh, I know in my time at the Amalgamated Transit Union, uh, there is a, a history that was done for their 100th anniversary, but that was 30 years ago. The book is out of print. No one can get it. So you have tens of thousands of members of that union and millions of members of other unions that just drift along not having any idea where they came from. And the leadership of the labor movement in the United States ought to be ashamed of itself. I have said that to their faces. They generally don't like it, but I'm sorry. This is something that they can do. They are in possession of resources and uh, abilities to do these things. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's an interesting aspect to all of this. What are the unions doing? What are the trade unions doing to promote an understanding of their own history? And I'm not talking about out to the community at large, going on television, coming on your show. I'm talking about what's being done within these unions to, so that the leadership would speak to just the membership of the union to convey this history and this uh, yeah. you know, understanding of things. Absolutely. It, it, Absolutely. I mean, amen, brother. Seriously, uh, as a former history teacher, um, 
I, yeah, I, I've been amazed by that, that there's just such a lack of history uh, of our own organizations that were built through struggle, uh, tremendous struggle and sacrifice. Uh, and, and so I really, really appreciate your comments there, and I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and I really appreciate the work that you're doing here with this, with these republishing projects, getting this stuff back out in print. It is important, uh, and it's reaching people. And I really, you know, I value the work that you're doing as a student of history and, and as, as an activist in the labor movement. I really do appreciate it. I think you're doing great work. And uh, Yeah, no, Adam, you know what? The boss, the boss and the politicians, what are most of the politicians? They're the boss's politicians. They're not ours. That's the problem in this country. So why would any of us think that the bosses, the employers or the employers frontmen and women in the political realm. Why would any of us think that they would want to tell the, the true story of what we have accomplished out here? Increasingly, these folks would liquidate us wholesale if they were able to do it. So it falls only to us, only to us to do this work. And uh, and one question, uh, when you wrap up the show and you, uh, you know, produce it, put it out, uh, you know, if you'd be so kind, put uh, international publishers uh, information in there, the website Absolutely. and whatnot. And, and you may not want to do it, but anyone out there listening, taking this in that has any particular book that they're interested in, put my email in there, Adam. And I, I do hear from folks who say, what do you think about this book? Or why can't I get this one? Or do you have any idea how we might, you know, have extra copies located of this? I, I'm not sure if this is going to turn into my late life uh, avocation. <laughs> it sort of has. I figure, yeah, why not? I mean, uh, you know, there's an admonition from Mother Jones, Mother Mary Harris Jones, one of the phenomenally important labor leaders in the early part of the last century, uh, an Irish immigrant, a woman who spent most of her career, uh, you know, defending uh, child labor or defending the children who were subjected to child labor and the coal miners industry, the death, life and death battle. And Mother Jones had an admonition that comes down to us, which was her admonition to work. Now, here was a woman that was, you know, maybe went to third grade, but she said to the other workers, she would say, sit down and read and prepare yourself for the battles. To come. And she didn't, she wasn't referring to you reading soap opera digest or reading uh, a Hollywood magazine. She was expecting you in context of her remark was so that you would read the real history, uh, the fighting history of the labor movement so that you as a worker could be better prepared for this showdown that always comes. Uh, you know, I, I always say there's a 100% chance of a showdown in a worker's life with their boss. Uh, are you going to win it or are you going to lose it? And if you have a union, you have a much better chance uh, of winning it than not. So Mother Jones, and I will say Philip Foner, I had mentioned Phil Foner. He had done a collected works of Mother Jones, which is also out of print. Uh, that's one we need to bring back. The autobiography of Mother Jones is available. If you go online, you can find the autobiography of Mother Mary Harris Jones. Mother Jones, uh, again, needs to be better circulated and, you know, have folks made aware of it. But what a what a tremendous woman she was to right. as an old lady right to take on bosses and walk picket lines and go stir up uh, support for striking coal miners and she would go rescue little children being you know worked to death in textile mills and other hell holes so uh, why wouldn't we want to you know promote an understanding that this woman really gave her all good example for us to follow. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, Chris, did you have anything else or, cause I think that's a, that's a good place to leave it with, uh, mother Jones and some inspiration to read for the battles ahead. Yeah. Sit down, read, prepare for the battles ahead, go online, look for international publishers, look for those books that I talked about, uh, look for Labor's Untold Story, that book, which is sold uh, by the United Electrical Workers Union, uh, ueunion.org. And shout you out to UE for doing that. Seriously. Yeah, really. I it, it, it UE is probably the only union that I'm aware of, and there could be that I'm not aware of. I want to be careful with that. But I don't know of another union that produces a labor book for any member, including its own members, to read and 
become better educated about this. So anyway, yeah, I appreciate you having me on. And I think everything we can do to, to promote the, the history of our movement. And the final thing I'll say is for the naysayers, for the folks who say, well, Chris, people don't read anymore. Uh, and if they do read, they read on their phones. They Well, baloney, baloney. Workers do read books. They don't know where they are. They don't know what they are. If, I, I can't tell you how many times I will introduce somebody to a book and they'll get back to me months or even years later or call me and ask me, where can I get more of this? This is phenomenal. Uh, so we need to combat that uh, myth that somehow uh, folks will only educate themselves by watching YouTube or TikTok. Or something. Those things can be valuable adjuncts to this, but the, the, the real written histories documented scrupulously written uh, history, as you mentioned, as a history teacher, uh, it's invaluable. It has to be included in the mix. Absolutely. So I'm happy to do it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Chris. Really appreciate your time and all your efforts, man. Yeah, thank you. Have thank a good you. one. Okay. Thanks much. All right, folks. Yeah, Chris Townsend, longtime organizer, friend of the show, frequent guest. Really, really impressed with all this work he's doing getting these books published. Uh, I think it's fantastic. Like I said, as a former history teacher, you know, no need to convince me the importance of history. I think this is just, you know, we need more of this in our labor movement. Uh, and and I've, I'm excited that it seems like labor history is kind of picking back up. Uh, there seems to be a trend of it becoming, you know, more in the popular consciousness. Um, and I credit you know, the work of folks like Chris getting these works back out into the consciousness. Uh, I credit folks like Kim Kelly and, you know, her recent book, uh, Fight Like Hell, an untold uh, story of labor. And I really, you know, I'm excited to see that and I would love to see more of it. Uh, and I, I'll put out a shameless plug here that, you know, I, I mentioned a couple months ago, I spoke or a month or so ago, I spoke to some students in high schools, a couple of high schools here in North Alabama talked about unions, what they can do for workers today, and a little bit about their history in the United States. Uh, and, and we spoke to a couple social studies classes. So I want to put that out there as an idea for folks. Um, obviously, if you're local, hit me up and I'd be happy to come help you out and, and come visit the school with you or, or do the school visit uh, through the North Alabama Labor Council. But if for those of you who aren't local, uh, talk with your labor council, talk with your union brothers and sisters and see what kind of outreach are you doing with young folks? Uh, and can you can you expand in that arena uh, to talk about unions and their history? And then, as Chris mentioned, what kind of history are you doing internally? Do folks in your union actually know a little bit about the history of your union, when it started, how it was created, the struggles over time, how you ended up where you're at today? That is so critical, uh, and it's definitely, you know, this conversation has inspired me to learn a little bit more about uh, my local, IOTC 900. Um, I, I definitely am going to be talking to some of the old-timers and, you know, hear some stories and get some more information because I think it's important we know where we come from. So uh, with all that said, I am going to wrap things up this morning by sharing a couple uh, training opportunities from Labor Notes. Uh, they do have a uh, workshop in June, What to Do When Your Union Breaks Your Heart. I uh, mentioned that one before. They run that one usually every month. This will be Tuesday, June 6th, and it will run from 6.30 to 8 p.m. Central Time. Uh, it's online, it's through Zoom, and it is free. So check that out if you are interested. Uh, and also, they will be having their Secrets of a Successful Organizer June workshop series. Uh, so if you missed it last month, they are bringing back Secrets of a Successful Organizer. It will run on Wednesdays from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. Central Time on June 7th, 14th, and 21st. So you still have time. It's June 1st today. Uh, if you're listening to this a couple days later on the podcast, you know, you still have some time to get signed up for that. Uh, I couldn't recommend it enough. If you are at all interested in learning more about organizing, particularly in the workplace or, you know, whether that's inside your union or creating a new union uh, or just learning more about how to be an organizer, I really recommend Secrets of a Successful Organizer workshop series with Labor Notes. Um, it's only 15 bucks for the entire series. And uh, for 30 bucks, you can get 
the, the series plus a one-year subscription to Labor Notes magazine. So I do recommend that very much. So that's it, folks, for the 13th episode of Shop Talk. Hope it was worth your time, and I really appreciate everyone listening. If you enjoyed it, please share with your network and make sure you're plugged into our work. Stay tuned to the Valley Labor Report on Saturday morning, starting at 9.30 a.m. Central, live on WVNN, YouTube, and Facebook. Please sign up for our email list at tvlr.fm, and don't forget to like, review, share, and subscribe. And finally, if you believe in the power of solidarity, if you share our mission to grow the Southern labor movement, if you believe in the power of collective organization, and if you want media that is for working people, by working people, please consider becoming a recurring donor at tvlr.fm slash donate. All power to the workers. Solidarity, y'all.